I am not Jeannie Phillips, but this is still Vermont Ed Reads, a podcast by, for, and with books for Vermont educators. Now, Jeannie's a little under the weather this week, but we have an episode she recorded earlier with Christopher Kaufman Ilstrup, the executive director of the Vermont Humanities Council. Now, the Vermont Humanities Council sponsors Vermont Reads, separate from Vermont Ed Reads, but Vermont Reads is a program by which one book is chosen for the entire state of Vermont for everyone to discuss and, this is the important part, take action on based on what they've learned about the book. 2020's Vermont Reads book is The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. It's the book that Jeannie and Christopher will be discussing in this episode. And because 2020 is a little 2020, the deadline for this year's Vermont Reads book has been extended through June 2021. We're all just going to roll with it. This is Vermont Ed Reads, books by, for, and with Vermont educators. Now let's hear Jeannie chat. Today I'm with Christopher Kaufman Ilstrup, and we'll be talking about The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Thanks for joining me, Christopher. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jeannie. It's really great to be here. Do you want to tell us, before you read a little excerpt, a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm the uh, executive director of Vermont Humanities. We're the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and uh, we've been around since 1974. Uh, And our mission is to um, really make sure that all Vermonters um, have the opportunity to read and learn throughout life. Uh, We do a lot of different programs, but one of the programs that that many Vermonters are very, very fond of is Vermont Reads, where we um, pick one novel each year. Um, and work with that novel in communities throughout the state um, for the entire year. Excellent. I love Vermont Reads, and I've been reading your selections for many years, and um, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Um, You indicated that you'd love to start with a little bit of a reading from The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, so I'm just going to turn it over to you. Great. Um, Yeah, so... This is a this is an interesting book for these times because it addresses um, uh, police brutality um, against African Americans, um, and so I'm going to start with a short um, excerpt um, from the book, um, and it starts with the main character Star, um, who's a 17 year old girl, um, talking uh, to members of her family the day after she has witnessed the shooting of one of her childhood friends uh, by a policeman. And she starts, star. I borrowed your hoodie, Seven, I mumble. It's random, but it's better than nothing. The blue one, Mama had to throw it away. Khalil's blood, I swallow. His blood got on it. Oh, that's all anybody says for a minute. Mama turns around to the skillet. Don't make any sense. That baby, she says thickly, he was just a baby. Daddy shakes his head. That boy never hurt anybody. He didn't deserve that shit. Why did they shoot him, Seven asks. Was he a threat or something? No, I say quietly. I stare at the table. I can feel all of them watching me again. He didn't do anything, I say. We didn't do anything. Khalil didn't even have a gun. Daddy releases a slow breath. Folks around here are going to lose their minds when they find that out. People from the neighborhood are already talking about it on Twitter, Seven says. I saw it last night. Did they mention your sister? Mama asks. No, just RIP Khalil messages. Fuck the police, stuff like that. I don't think they know details. What's gonna happen to me when the details do come out, I ask. What do you mean, baby? My mom asks. Besides the cop, I'm the only person who was there and you've seen stuff like this. It ends up on national news. People get death threats, cops target them, all kinds of stuff. I won't let anything happen to you, daddy says. None of us will. He looks at Mama and Seven. We're not telling anybody that Star was there. I'll stop there. That's a really powerful quote. Whew. There's a lot going on there, and um, I wonder if we might use it as a segue to ask, why did Vermont Humanities Council choose The Hate You Give for Vermont Reads? Yeah, it's a it's a tough book, um, and it's very it's very relevant 
at this moment, of course. Um, we really chose it because last year our Vermont Reads book was March uh, by John Lewis, uh, the congressman who recently passed away, um, with his co-writers, co uh, Andrew Iden uh, and Nate Powell. Uh, and that book is also a really powerful book um, with a fair amount of violence in it. Uh, you know, this, it's the story of John Lewis growing up and joining uh, the nonviolent civil rights movement of Dr. Martin Luther King. And it, it goes through a number of different events in the congressman's life. It uh, goes through crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the beatings that happened there. Uh, it goes through the, the uh, lunch counter sit-ins and the violence that happened there. It goes through a lot of the, the jail uh, time that John Lewis and his fellow SNCC uh, organizers went through. Um, but one of the things that, that we um, thought about as we worked with that book was that it, it's really, um, for many people, it feels like faraway history. Even though it was only about 60 years ago, for many people, especially young people, it feels like it was very, very long ago. Um, and we felt like it was important to recognize that the civil rights movement that John Lewis started is not over. Um, and, I th and I think that, you know, as we watched um, the congressman in his, in his final uh, weeks visiting Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C., that was very much the message that he wanted to give um, to young people today as well, was that this time this movement is not in the past this movement is now um, and that's really why we felt like it was important to continue the conversation um, with a book that really dives deep into some of the work that the black lives matter movement is doing today i love march and john lewis is a, a hero of mine i um i watched Barack Obama's eulogy and was really touched um, by him saying, be more like John Lewis. And it's become something that uh, John Lewis, I know, centered love in his work and thought of his um, activism as an act of love and the civil rights movement as something that embodied love and that justice is a form of love. And so um, I carry that in Barack Obama's words about John Lewis in my heart and think a lot about how can I be more like John? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm so grateful that you bring him into this conversation and bring this book into continuity with the last year Vermont Reads book and, and um, with his life, really. I'm also wondering, you say that John Lewis um, says that the civil rights movement isn't just um, ancient history, if you will. It isn't just in the past, but it's also something that I think a lot of folks associate with the South. And um, here we are in Vermont. Um, and um, I think that bringing this book here is also a way of asking us to deal with our own racism here when we think of ourselves as not a very racist state. Yeah. Uh I, you know, I think that's that's very clear, and we see that especially in the last uh, six months or so um, that there have been so many um, really intense examples of of the work that we need to do um, in this state. You know that that we continue to see threats made against uh, black organizers. We continue to see. Black organizers actually leave their communities because they they and their family don't feel safe. Um, and in a way, that's actually part of the story in the hate you give uh, is that there's a big there's a big debate uh, that runs throughout the book between Star's parents about whether they should stay in the in the community that they live in, whether or not it's safe for their children. Um, and I think that that's that's very much true for. Um, for folks of color, for organizers all over the place. It's not something that um, disappears once you cross the border into Vermont. We like to think that we have a very safe uh, state, but that is, that is not many people's experiences. 
Right. And the statistics also don't bear out that we are a non-racist state, right? Because um, people of color are way more likely to be stopped by police officers, right? As just one statistics or people of color who live in Vermont are way more likely to be incarcerated, yeah. right? And so our statistics show um, racism in action, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, to just one statistic that came up yesterday again, and it's, 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 I think it's not shocking to many people, but uh, when you hear it for the first time, I think it's quite surprising that Vermont incarcerates black men at the highest rate in the nation. We are number one. Uh, and there's some, there's some very uh, systemic problems there. Right. This is our, this is our issue too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, when you said that about um, the, the, when you talked a little bit about um, the debates within Starr's family about whether to leave, I had marked a piece of the text on page 52 that I think that just really are really poignant about that. Um, Starr's father, Maverick, is really loyal to his neighborhood. The neighborhood is really important to him. He runs a business in the neighborhood. Um, his mother, or Star's mother, on the other hand, his wife, is really interested in, in moving out to the stub suburbs in a place where she feels like her kids will be safer and um, where her brother, Carlos, lives. And so um, Uncle Carlos is also a police officer. So I'm just going to read a section to th of this because I think it's really relevant to what we're talking about here in Vermont as well. Why was she even in the car with a drug dealer, Uncle Carlos said. Lisa, I keep telling you, you need to move her and Sakani out of this neighborhood. It's poisonous. I've been thinking about it. And we're not going anywhere, Daddy says. Maverick, she's seen two of her friends get killed, Mama says. Two, and she's only 16. And one was at the hands of a person who was supposed to protect her. What, you think if you live next door to them, they'll treat you different? Why does it always have to be about race with you, Uncle Carlos says. Other races aren't killing us nearly as much as we're killing ourselves. Negro, please. If I kill Tyrone, I'm going to prison. If a cop kills me, he's getting put on leave. Maybe. There's something about this book, I think, that forces us to reckon both with... Um, that forces us to reckon... Um, with what's on the news in a different way that like brings to life what we've been hearing on the news. And I'm just thinking about, um, you mentioned when we started this conversation, Brianna Taylor and that um, the indictment that they're going to offer, they're going to push for one of the officers involved in that murder is a really small one, right? And so this puts that in context that Maverick's really speaking of this, even though this book uh, came out in 2017, so there's something about this for me that's like how timeless this book is, even though it was it came out of a very specific time because of how little movement or progress we've made in this area. And then also uh, a way in which it brings it home for us, even if we think we don't live in a place that has this kind of incidents happen. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, it's true. We keep seeing this story over and over and over again. And so in this fictional treatment, um, in this fictional treatment, we see these, um, these dynamics um, happening that um, you just see in community after community all across the country. And you see them here in Vermont as well. Um, but you know, I, I also you know, wanna turn it a little bit and say there's some really, crazy stuff that happens in this book. There is some really deep systemic racism. There is some really deep pain. They're telling a deep story but they're, uh, of pain, but there's also a lot of joy in this book. Um, and, and as each time I read it, that comes out to me more and more uh, that, that there is um, a community in Garden Heights that is really looking out for each other. Um, Garden Heights is the name of the, the, the neighborhood, that the fictional neighborhood that Star and her family live in. Um, and they know everyone. They know all the neighbors. All of the, the parents' generation are, are taking care of everybody's kids. 
Um, the grandparents' generation knows everything that's happening uh, in the community. They talk a lot about being outside in the streets, talking with one another. Um, the scenes where they are gathering or um, in, in um, celebratory space are really wonderful um, examples of, of community culture um, that I think is, is just beautiful. Um, and is, is also really, I think, relatable in many ways too. You know, when we think about our own neighborhoods here in Vermont, um, there's, some, there's some really racist stuff that happens here. We have deeply embedded systemic racism. We also care about each other in, in these communities as well. And we also have some of the same issues that exist in Garden Heights. So that's another thing that, that came up for me, particularly uh, thinking about how much they struggle with, with systemic racism and economics, how much they struggle with systemic racism um, and um, the drug culture and the gang culture. Like that is not stuff that only exists uh, in an inner city neighborhood, right? The, the opioid epidemic is just as real in, in Barrie or Montpelier or Winooski or Brattleboro or Rutland as it is in the fictitious Garden Heights, or you know anywhere else in the United States, um, and I think that there's an important message there too, right? That this is not uh, a community that's at a distance. This is this is we can relate to this. This this is these are things that happen in our communities as well. I think what I'm hearing from you, and I definitely felt this when I first read the book and then rereading it, it came through loud and clear to me too, is that Angie Thomas takes this real strengths-based approach, this real um, asset-based approach as she's writing this family, this community, this story. And so even though this terrible, awful thing has happened to Khalil and Star is a witness to it, and it, it really rips apart the community in a lot of ways, it's really painful for the community, for Miss Rosalie, Khalil's um, grand mother for for all of these folks for the young people in this community there's also this sense of um angie seeing all of their um their gifts and their um, love for each other and um the place that that struck me most acutely is the really beautiful relationship um, between maverick and lisa between star's parents and um the way that they're able to hold the tension of this this challenging moment and still love each other and love their three children, um, Seven and Sakani and Star, um, so holy. And um, I think that's really important because I, I think that a lot of books about race have been about conflict or about pain. And so Angie Thomas's book is about that, but it's also about strength and about wholeness. Yeah, and, and, and there's, there's so much beauty in that and also a lot of humor, you know, that I think one of the, the things about Maverick and Lisa's relationship is that, you know, they do have a lot of conflict about this tension between the suburbs and the neighborhood, uh, but they do hold each other very much in a loving space as they have that argument and they embarrass the crap out of their kids all the time with the way that they love each other and the, and how public they are about the love that they have for each other and that that is i think i expect so relatable um, to anybody um, who is a teenager watching their parents interact with each other or anybody who's a parent um, trying to you know push the buttons on their kids to make them react um, there's there's a lot of humor in that um, and it is, it's so strengths-based. It's all about assets. And there are so many assets in the community that, that Angie Thomas has written. And it's redemptive, right? Because Maverick hasn't lived an ideal or perfect life, right? He spent time in jail and he's come out the other side of it as a business owner, as a family man, as a, um, a pillar of the community, really. Um, and so there's something about that redemption that feels really, um, hopeful to me yeah and and his relationship with um with uncle carlos lisa's brother um who raised um mav's kids uh, during the time that he was in jail 
um, is a really uh, interesting and complex relationship because Uncle Carlos is, is a cop. He is serving in the same precinct as, as the cop who murdered Khalil. Um, and so there's, there's a, a really interesting um, tension um, between the two characters and their approach to community building. Uh, that you know that that Mav has this kind of incredible sense of organizing in the community, um, and um, Carlos comes at it from a more traditional um, policing perspective. Um, but they're often coming at each other in ways that um, they have to look beyond the stereotypes of cops or gangbangers. Uh, and I, I find that an interesting piece of this book as well. Yes, that part of the, the part of the story where we get this contrast between um, uh, Uncle Carlos and Mav, Maverick, reminded me of Jason Reynolds and, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten the second author, but Jason Reynolds book um, that's co-written called um, All, All American Boys. Mm-hmm. Have you read that one? And and so this, it's a, a white perspective and a black perspective and two perspectives on an act of um, police violence. And um, it also has this powerful contrast. And I, I think what Angie Thomas is, I think she's really getting at the plurality of ways that we can think about these issues. And another place that sort of seems plural in this book to me is um, around, you know, this, the book starts with this big R, if you will, act of racism, where, um, where a police officer um, acts with excessive force and ends up killing um, a young black man. But there are these smaller acts of racism that happen at the private school that Star attends. And I'm particularly mm. thinking about her interactions with Haley and Maya. And I wondered if yeah. you wanted to talk a little bit about that sort of quieter kind of racism that that gets spotlighted in this book yeah you know could i could i read another short passage from the book actually that gets right at that yes please this is it starts on page 71 um so in this the the ongoing uh, battle between lisa and mav one of the compromises that was made is that um the three kids are sent to a private school in the suburbs that is close to where Uncle Carlos lives. Um, and it's called Williamson. Um, and um, Sakani and Seven and Star are all students there. It's an almost an entirely white school. And um, Star has two girlfriends, Haley and Maya. Uh, Haley is very, very white. And Maya is um, from a Chinese American immigrant family. Um, but this, this little passage, um, is as, uh, Star is getting out of the car to go to, to walk into the school in the morning. Um, and she says, I get out of the car for at least seven hours. I don't have to talk about 115. That's the officer who killed Khalil. That's his badge number. I don't have to think about Khalil. I just have to be normal star at normal Williamson and have a normal day. And that means flipping the switch in my brain so I'm Williamson star. Williamson star doesn't use slang. If a rapper would say it, she doesn't say it, even if her white friends do. Slang makes them cool. Slang makes her hood. Williamson star holds her tongue when people piss her off, so nobody will think she's the angry black girl. Williamson star is approachable. No stank eyes, no side eyes, none of that. Williamson Star is non-confrontational. Basically, Williamson Star doesn't give anyone a reason to call her ghetto. I can't stand myself for doing it, but I do it anyway. Yeah, that passage really highlights um, for me what it must feel like um, and be like to code switch as a regular part of your school day. Yeah, and you know, for, for Folks, I think it's getting a little bit more well-known, but um, a lot of people might not know what code switching is. Um, and um, code switching is what Star is talking about in that passage where you, you really have to become another personality in certain situations. 
uh, I first learned about code switching, not in the context of racism, but in the context of queerness um, and feeling like you behave in one way in a certain group of people and you behave in a different way among another group of people. Um, and I'll, although I know that code switching as a concept originated um, in communities of color, it does apply to other kinds of difference where you really have to hide um, in many ways. And what Star is doing is, is pretty classic. She doesn't tell people what her uh, life is like in her neighborhood. Not because she's not proud of her community, I think she is proud of her community, but to, um, to have to um, compete with some of the other private school kids. Uh, one of the things she talks about is they're all saying where they're going on their Christmas vacation, you know, that they're going to the Bahamas, to the family home in the Bahamas, or they're going to Taipei to visit their grandparents. Um, Star doesn't have any of that, and she can't, um, she can't compete with those kids. Um, and it's hard for her as a teenager um, to figure out that she can hold on to other things. It's a complex piece of her story. I don't, I think about Star and other folks who have to code switch in order to, um, to fit in to dominant culture, dominant narratives, right? And, and how much work that is and how little credit it's given, right? To read a situation and know um, which version of yourself, to already have to think about those versions anyway, but then all the work, all the sophistication, the sort of literacy that it is to, to be able to do that and to know how to speak to your community is both a strength and a tremendous burden, right? It's a lot to ask a 16-year-old kid to do. Yeah, and they're doing it all the time, right? And they, they're, they're learning it from a very young age. And I can you know, say that from my own perspective, um, you know, as a young person, that you learn very quickly um, what's safe and what's not safe um, in, in any given situation. Um, we recently did a, a training for librarians um, who were going to be working with this book. Um, and that's one of the things that the trainer talked about, uh, Dr. Laura Jimenez, um, and she's gonna be coming back and doing some more work for us. Uh, but she mentioned right away uh, in, you know, to a room full of largely white librarians, um, she told a story about how as a Latina woman, um, she spends much of the time scanning the horizon for that's about to go down, I think is the term that she used. Um, and I think that's true for anybody from a marginalized population, constantly aware of your surroundings um, and what might be dangerous. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's very much what STAR is experiencing um, at Williamson. Yes. I, I think this book, I read this book in 2016. Um, as a librarian, I was at a library conference and I got an advanced reader's copy. I, I saw the poster then, which is different than the poster now and knew I needed a copy of this book and, um, and read it right away. And um, what I remember in 2016 is that I had a 16 year old son at home and same age as Star, right? And in this book in chapter two, um, when they first get pulled over, Khalil and Star, um, Star immediately starts remembering two talks she had with her parents. Um, one was about the birds and the bees, and then the other one she says, the other talk was about what to do if a cop stopped me. Mama fussed and told Daddy I was too young for that. He argued that I wasn't too young to get arrested or shot. Star, Star, you do whatever they tell you to do, he said. Keep your hands don't make any sudden moves. Only speak when they speak to you. I knew it must have been serious. Daddy has the biggest mouth of anybody I know. And if he said to be quiet, I needed to be quiet. And, and Star continues throughout this um, ordeal with the police officer to keep remembering her father's words. And I remember reading this, you know, it's on page 21. It's the beginning of the book and realizing I had never once had a conversation with my son about what to do if you're stopped by a police officer. Never. And um, feeling both the 
the privilege of that and the um, the shock of that and the pain of, of what it must be like to have to have that conversation early and often. And so thinking about, um, thinking about what you just said about how people of color have to navigate spaces and how they're looking for, I think you used the term that might go down, right? And like, and, and the difference when you, when you occupy an identity that is um, in, in, um, that represents the dominant culture. I guess I'm just, I'm just still sitting with that and remembering how much that hit me at that time. Yeah. You know, another, another resource for folks, of course, would be um, Ta-Nehisi Coates's book, Between the World and Me, the letter that he writes to his son, um, which is that talk um, that, that Black parents have with their children. And that those three lines, keep your hands visible, no sudden moves, only speak when spoken to, they repeat themselves over and over and over again through the book. Um, and, and I think this, that's a piece of this that white folk do have a really hard time understanding, um, that the relationship that we might have with the police in our community is very different from the relationship that other people might have um, to the police in their community. And I think about, you know, here, I live in Montpelier. Uh, my child goes to the Montpelier schools. There's a big debate happening right now about the school resource officer, um, who is a cop who is assigned to the school district and spends time in the schools. Um, the officer wears a gun um, in the building. And there are a lot of parents who have expressed concern about having an armed police officer in the building. And a lot of them are concerned um, because of the association of school resource officers with systemic racism and uh, the potential for police violence, um, particularly against young men of color. And we are a very white community, um, and there are lots of other parents who just cannot get that, who just are not able to get that understanding of keep your hands visible, no sudden moves, only speak when spoken to, that the relationship that we have to the police is not the same as other people's relationship to the police. Um, and that it's traumatizing for some children um, because there's generational trauma associated uh, with that relationship. And I have, with, with all due respect, many Vermont cops, right, are wonderful, wonderful people. Um, and they are not engaging um, in violence against young men of color or young people of color. Um, but that does not, change the fact that the generational trauma that is associated with police um, is, is still there. Um, and is borne out by our statistics that we put young men of color in jail at a higher rate than any other state. I think that's one of the reasons why this book um, and books by people of color are so important for um, students in mostly white schools to read. And I'm thinking about um, Rudine Sims Bishop, who in the 1990s wrote a piece about um, windows, mirrors, and sliding doors. And um, there's a great graphic I've mentioned probably before, and we'll put in the transcript, where if you are a white um, young person growing up in this culture, because of the way you're represented in books and the media, it's like you're surrounded by mirrors everything's mirroring back to you your own experience, which makes it seem like your experience is the only one. If you're a person of color, your mirrors get smaller and smaller to the point where if you're Native American, the, the way you see yourself in media and the culture is like the size of a compact, right? It's teeny tiny. And um, that's harmful for people of color who don't see themselves represented, but it's also um, harmful because of the way that white folks are overrepresented in their own experience of media and books, right? That they think that there's only one way to experience the world. And yeah. so for, 
for me, we can't in schools read enough books by and about people of color written by own voices stories of people of color and other marginalized voices because we're so inundated. We've been so inundated with our own story that we need um, we need to welcome in other versions so we have a more pluralistic and um, understanding view of the world. Yeah. You know, and, and um, that's funny, that essay has come up over and over again for me in the last couple of weeks. So um, I'm glad you'll put it in the, the resources um, for folks. Um, Y'all should read it. Um, it is quite illuminating. Um, the, um, I mean, it's, it's arguably harmful, right, that we're two white people talking about this book together, uh, right? Yes. That, that, that we have um, uh, biases and perspectives um, and misunderstandings um, that are pretty much ensuring that there are pieces of this work that we don't get, that we don't understand. Um, and, um, you know, we at Vermont Humanities um, have have heard that critique, you know, why are you as a historically white organization doing work with this book? Um, and it's a painful critique to hear, right? Um, that there, that you can't just read a book and get it, right? Because we're smart people. A lot of us are English majors. We read a lot. We know about new criticism. I went to Kenyon College. I can do this. Um, but um, the reality is that there are, um, places where I'm going to mess up often. Um, and I have to be very, very careful about that. Um, and so one of the things that, that we've decided to do is, you know, which we haven't typically done in the past in Vermont Reads, um, is offer facilitative assistance to every um, community that wants to work with this book to help them um, address some of the pitfalls, some of the places where we could fall down, where we could make mistakes. Um, you know, and among the biggest of them, of course, is that as white folks, we could assume that um, all people are having, all young people are having the same experience as Seven and Sakani and Star are. And that is simply not the case. Um, and, and for many um, young people of color in Vermont, their lives are radically different from the experience that Star has in this book. This is a novel, it's fiction. Uh, it's not based on, on somebody's actual experience, uh, although it draws a lot of elements of truth out of history and out of the current current day. Um, and so I think you know we have to be careful as teachers, as librarians, as organizers around this book um, to make sure that we're recognizing the complete humanity of the people that are in the room with us when we're having these conversations um, and not make assumptions about what people's experiences may or may not be. Uh, and I hope that we'll do a good job, but I'm also sure that we're screwing it up every day. And the only thing worse than screwing it up would be not trying at all, right? Like we're not, like I can't let, um, the errors I'm going to make in my own whiteness stand in the way of me reading and talking about books by people of color, right? And I can't expect just people of color to do that work. And so I totally hear you and couldn't agree more. And I'm sure that myself five years from now will listen back to some of the conversations I have about <laughs> race and about books and be mortified, right, at how little I knew because I'm always striving to learn more. And I won't learn more if I don't. Um, try yeah. right if i don't lean in and so I'm, I'm thinking about i really appreciate that you just said that and the tension holding the tension of both of those truths and of um for me fiction in particular gets at deep truth like i learn so much about um what i don't know the lived experience of others through fiction not because it's factual but because it hits on something even more and that i can experience what it must be like to to um to have daily experiences of microaggression in, in a way that I can't walking around in my white skin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I um, go back to another one of my favorite books, um, The Color Purple by Alice Walker, um, which as a, as a young queer person really meant a tremendous amount to me, right? Because there was a mirror there of a queer experience um, in Celie's relationship with Shug, 
Um, but it was also a book that got really, really challenged, uh, particularly when it was made into the movie by a white guy, right, by Steven Spielberg, um, that it was um, a book that was showing too much, um, that white people wouldn't understand, um, that there was too much violence in it, particularly violence against women um, by black men, um, and that it, it was a book that was dangerous for white people to read. Um, and yet I, you know, looking back on, probably read it 10 or 15 times now over the last 30 years, you know, since it came out in the early, early 1980s, I think, um, I guess almost 40 years old now. Um, and I think about this book, The Hate You Give, and I think, you know, there's some, there's some parallel qualities to that, like, right, of what is, what does it mean to have that that um, internal view of the community's dynamics. But to go back to the beginning of our conversation, right, as with, um, with, with Seeley, there's tremendous strength in that character, um, in the color purple. There's tremendous strength in the women in that book, um, particularly the women, but some, also some of the men. Um, that ex also exists in this book, The Hate You Give. Tremendous strength in that community. Um, and I think we wanna really hold on to that, right? What's, what are the assets um, that this community has? What are the things that they are doing to support each other, to love each other, to hold each other up, even in the face of this tremendous violence? Um, that's really important. Um, can I read another little piece? Um, so this, you know, we, where we started at the beginning of the conversation, um, Mav and Lisa had said to start, nobody's gonna know. You're not gonna tell anybody, nobody needs to know. And they felt like that was, that was their way of helping Star to cope with this trauma, this tremendous violence that had been visited upon her um, and to protect her, right? And to protect the family from the consequences of being the witness. Um, by the middle of the book, they've all kind of changed their minds. Um, and Star um, has decided to testify um, in front of the grand jury about what happened in hopes of getting justice for her friend. Um, I'm not gonna read that piece, but I'm gonna read the first time she goes um, to the police station to talk with the detectives about what happened. It's the beginning of chapter six, page 93. Um, My mom and I arrive at the police station at 4.30 on the dot. A handful of cops talk on phones, type on computers, or stand around. Normal stuff, like on Law and Order. But my breath catches. I count. One, two, three, four. I lose count around 12 because the guns in their holsters are all I can see. All of them. Two of us. Mama squeezes my hand. Breathe. I didn't realize I had grabbed hers. I take a deep breath and another, and she nods with each one saying, that's it, you're okay, we're okay. Uncle Carlos comes over and he and mama lead me to his desk where I sit down. I feel eyes on me from all around. The grip tightens around my lungs and Uncle Carlos hands me a sweating bottle of water. Mama puts it to my lips. I take slow sips and look around Uncle Carlos's desk to avoid the curious eyes of the officers. He has almost as many pictures of me and Sakani on display as he has of his own kids. I'm taking her home, Mama tells him. I'm not putting her through this today. She's not ready. I understand, but she has to talk to them at some point, Lisa. She's a vital part of this investigation. Mama sighs. Carlos, I get it, he says in a noticeably lower voice. Believe me, I do. Unfortunately, if we want this investigation done right, she has to talk to them. If not today, then another day. Another day of waiting and wondering what's gonna happen. I can't go through that. I wanna do it today, I mumble. I wanna get it over with. I'll stop there. Well, that feels like a really important passage. Do you wanna say more about why you selected it? You know, it's, it's, it's again, it kind of goes back to this like notion that I don't, I don't get it. I don't have the same relationship to the to the police that many of my friends and colleagues do. That I can walk into the police station and think that it's a place where I can go to get help. And what Star does when she walks into the police station is she sees all the guns 
that might kill her or her mother or her father. Um, and it's just, a, it's, it's a base experience that is entirely different um, for some people versus other people. Um, and it's so important as, as readers and as change makers that we're able to understand that experience. It brings me back to when you were talking about the school resource officer Mm -hmm. and um, different perspectives on that, right? And thinking about there are probably um, kids walking into schools for whom, um, even in Vermont, for whom a gun on a school resource officer uh, triggers trauma, right? Or mm -hmm. brings up something that makes them feel uncomfortable or makes them feel unsafe in some way. Maybe not because of an experience with a cop, maybe because of experience with a gun, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe because of... Um, of something that's happened at home or in in their communities and and this assumption that because it's a cop it's everything's okay doesn't apply doesn't make it okay for all people who walk in doesn't change the biology of what happens for them when they see that gun mm -hmm. yeah yeah so uh I'm loving this conversation. I want to hear more about, um, I could talk about Star and her family for the rest of the day, but I want to hear more about what's happening around this book with Vermont Reads and, and how you're supporting, you talked a little bit about offering facilitation, but how are you supporting communities as they um, talk about this book? What are some of the events that are happening? Sure. Well, you know, some of the, the, um, the traditional way that Vermont Reads works is that we pick a book um, and we create a resource page around the book um, and we we think about several different things when we're picking the book we think is this a book that um, can be widely read for, um, from middle school um, on up is it at a literacy level that a lot of people will be able to read it um, we also think about whether or not the book will lend itself to collaborative projects because this is not a book group. The Vermont Reads Project is not meant to be a book group where you read the book and you talk about it. It's meant to be project-based, where you read the book and you talk about it and then you do something. Um, and we think, um, and we, we think about whether or not the book is going to be... Um, useful to communities in a way, um, well, I'll back that up a little bit. Um, we don't wanna choose a book that is already being widely read or widely taught. Um, so for example, uh, I was recently reading The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. Um, and thinking, well, that would be a really great uh, book. Um, it just so happened that that, came, that book came out just as I was graduating from college. And so as I checked it out with several of my colleagues, they said, well, that's great, but now every, every eighth grader in America reads that book. Uh, and uh, I didn't know that because it came out after I'd already had my educational experience. Um, so we wouldn't choose a book like that that's already being widely taught. Um, so we picked this book um, because it really does lend itself as the follow-on to March by the Congressman, by Congressman John Lewis. Uh, but also because there's so many opportunities in it for um, communities to do something later, right? So we know, for example, that many communities that are doing work with this book are also um, engaging with um, the Social Justice Action Committee at their church um, or um, the youth uh, anti-racism uh, organization at their school or a Black Lives Matter chapter um, in their community, uh, that there are opportunities for people to read the book, learn from the book, um, and then take some sort of action. Um, we also are, you know, super aware that we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, um, and the pandemic really shut down Vermont Reads for quite a number of months um, because we are pretty old-fashioned and we rely on paper books. Um, so we bought uh, 4,000 copies of The Hate You Give, um, and for four and a half months, we couldn't ship them anywhere because it wasn't safe. It wasn't considered safe 
um, to ship the boxes out. Um, so we're just now starting to see projects happening and there's been tremendous demand, which is awesome. And actually a, a bit of a shift when we started with the book at the beginning of the year, um, it was a bit of a slow start. And some librarians actually said, I'm not sure if this book is really gonna work out for us. Um, but then of course, history caught up with white people um, and um, we had several um, more horrifically violent situations happen. Um, and uh, suddenly the hate you give is pretty popular um, among, among white folks uh, because they really wanna learn. Um, and so it's our responsibility now as it picks up to make sure that we are being responsible with this book. Um, and so I mentioned earlier, we're providing facilitation um, trained facilitators who can help you with complicated conversations in your community. Um, and we're making a lot more suggestions about what kinds of things you might consider doing in your town um, to follow up um, with this. Um, and I'm excited to see what people come up with and what kinds of things happen. Um, I'm also, you know, excited to think about what other books people might read. Might they read Between the World and Me? Uh, might they read White Fragility? Um, and some other books uh, that then inspire people to take the next step in their journey. Um, I hope so, um, but we've got a lot to, a long ways to go, um, right? Certainly for us at Vermont Humanities, this is not something that is one and done. Um, we'll be at this for a long time, certainly for the rest of the time that I'm around, but I hope long after that. Um, and specifically on the hate you give, we decided to extend it another six months um, because we did lose that chunk of time because of the pandemic. Um, and so we'll be working and encouraging communities to do projects with this book all the way through June 30th of next year um, before we start the next book. What do you hope, what do you hope schools will do with this book? What are your hopes for how it'll, um... I don't know, spark change or uh, conversation in um, public schools? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a few things that I would say. Um, I hope that they'll use it. Um, and indeed, if they're going to use our books, they're required uh, to use it beyond the curriculum, right? It's not just a book where they can say, hey, send me 25 copies and uh, the ninth grade honors English class is going to read it. Um, they've actually got to involve another community organization. Um, and I hope that it will spark a partnership um, with that community organization, whether it's a social justice group at a local church um, or a youth organized um, activism group in their school that will carry on and they'll continue to um, build that partnership year over year. Um, I hope it will also encourage them to really get more Get more involved in understanding um, what communities in Vermont are struggling with around these issues. I mentioned, or you know, early on that um, that the the problems uh, that that Star is experiencing in her neighborhood are not limited to communities like Stars, right? That that a big part of of Khalil's story is that um, his mom was an addict. Um, and that is a story that is relevant to thousands of Vermont children. Um, and if, if we can learn some empathy around that um, and some, some do some change making around that here at home, um, I think that would be a great outcome. And, I, and of course, you know, one of our challenges here is to make sure that people understand that Khalil's mom's experience as an addict is not because she was black. Um, it's because of the, the racism um, that impacted uh, her her whole life. Um, and those those kinds of forces, that economic injustice, that systemic economic injustice exists in a lot of places. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely, especially with the, as you mentioned, the pandemic has changed your program and caused you to extend it, but the pandemic is also wreaking havoc on the economic lives of Vermonters, right? Mm -hmm. That we know that um, 
there's a lot more food insecurity and income insecurity right now because of COVID-19. And that to me feels like another thread where some of our students can see themselves in this book, the struggles mm-hmm. um, yeah. in this book. Lights are food, lights are food. That's a theme that comes up a lot. Um, and that's, that's a theme that's very much at play in Vermont right now. Yeah. Well, I have great hopes for how this is going to play out with the schools I work with. And um, I'm really excited that more and more kids are going to get to read the book. And you were kind enough to drop off a beautiful copy to me. I'm going to put a picture on um, the site in case you haven't seen it. The uh, Vermont Reads edition of The Hate You Give, which is a a lovely copy. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to talk a little bit about Jason Broughton and the conversation he's going to be having around this book. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, Jason Broughton is our state librarian. um, And I love that he always introduces himself that way. I'm Jason Broughton, your state librarian. Um, And um, he is going to be having a conversation with with our uh, dear friend and colleague, um, Dr. Laura Jimenez. Um, She is... Uh, uh, a professor of um, uh, middle grade uh, novels, young adult novels, um, studies the um, the use of um, of young adult literature in anti racism work, um, and has specifically done research around the hate you give, as well as a lot of other books. She has a great uh, blog that we'll get you the link for for the resource page. Um, and they're going to be having a conversation with um, school and public librarians on October the 1st. Um, and we will be linking to the recording of that conversation um, after the fact. And we'll make sure that you get it for your resource page. Um, it's been exciting to, um, to partner with Jason over the last um, year and a half because Vermont Humanities and VitLib really share a strong interest um, in anti-racist organizing um, and using books and literature in anti-racist organizing. Um, so it's, it's nice to have that partnership uh, with him. That's really exciting. I'll look forward to that. And um, Jason has actually agreed to be on the podcast and to choose a book for us to have a conversation about. So I'm really excited about that as well. Nice. Um, Do you know what book he's going to read? No, he is. He's he is holding me in suspense as of now. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> to reach back out and say, have you, he said he had several in mind. So we'll see uh-huh. what he comes up with. And I'll be curious to know if it's a young adult book, because we do um, a lot of work around young adult or middle grades books. Yeah. But we also talk about um, uh, a- adult books that um, maybe help with professional development of teachers or give us a different yeah. lens on teaching. Can I actually um, maybe put in a plug for nominations for Vermont Reads? Please. So we um, are always looking for suggestions of excellent Vermont Reads choices. And there is a nomination form on the Vermont Reads section of our website where you can um, put in your suggestion why you think it would be a great Vermont Reads book. I can tell you uh, now that we will be starting the next book um, in July of 2021. Um, we're very interested, particularly in books that might address issues of climate change. Um, and, um, and from my perspective, I think it would be very interesting to have uh, books that talk about climate change through, um, through a perspective of racial justice. Um, and what is, what is climate change going to, uh, how is climate change going to impact different communities um, around the globe over time. So if anybody has great ideas around that theme, we would love to hear them. Um, but other ideas are also always welcome around any theme. Um, I'm looking at a book right now in my office that I've been loving. Uh, it's called We Contain Multitudes by Sarah Hengstra. Um, and it's about two boys in love um, with Walt Whitman and with each other. Um, and that is an amazing book. So maybe that will make a Vermont Reads appearance at some point. But please go on the website and nominate your favorites um, so that we can consider them. 
Oh, Christopher, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> do, do I have to put my name on all my nominations? You, you can do whatever you want. Okay. You can put whatever name you want. Because um, I already have one that hits your boxes. Are you awesome. ready? Yeah. Are you ready? One of my favorite books of all time is a young adult book written by a First Nations author from Canada, Sheree Dimeline, and it's called The Marrow Thieves. And um, it's a dystopic piece of fiction that is utterly gorgeous. And, um, and it's about um, uh, some, some folks, young folks and older folks surviving um, in a post-climate change world. Um, um, this is crazy, but we were sitting around eating lunch outside on our front lawn at Vermont Humanities the other day with a couple of our new staff members and we went around the circle um and said what are you reading and um and one of our folks said i'm reading this amazing book called the marrow thieves it's really that i'd never heard of before it's the best it's amazing <laughs> i'm i feel like i need to loan you my copy because you know because you brought me the hate you give usually at the beginning of the show i ask people what's what they're reading what's on their bedside table and i feel like you've just given me we contain multitudes to add to my list is there any other book you're reading yeah. or book you've recently read that you want to share with us well we contain multitudes definitely also a canadian writer although the book takes place in um in minneapolis um, which is a lot of fun because it also brings in Prince, um, which is I really love Prince. quite wonderful. Um, so I would suggest that. Um, I am also um, wrapping up now M.T. Anderson's um, amazing epic, The Astonishing Life of Octavian Nothing, Traitor to the Nation, um, which I had not read before. Um, a lesser known work of his that I think everybody should read is Symphony for the City of the Dead. Um, I loved that book. Yes. Yeah. He actually came really to my book. library to talk to students about that book. That's a phenomenal book. Awesome. Well, I'm hoping, um, fingers crossed, that I can talk Vermont Youth Orchestra into doing a partnership with us um, around that book um, at some point. Um, although the rest of my team tells me it's too complicated and too depressing to talk about the Russian Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's a great book. Um, and uh, too depressing, that's totally relative. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of joy in Shostakovich as well as the hard stuff. Um, uh, and then, I, you know, on the more grown-up side, I'm reading a book uh, about Adam and Eve by um, um, the fellow who wrote Swerve, Stephen Greenblatt, historian, um, which has been really interesting, especially as it feeds into the Adam and Eve narrative in The Astonishing Life of Octavia Nothing. Um, that's been cool. One final suggestion, Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff. Oh, so say, the, say the title again? Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff. So it's a very popular TV show on HBO right now, and the TV show is terrific, uh, but the book is even better. Nice. So I think your dog is telling us it's time to wrap up, but um, I just want to thank you for me. I've lived in Vermont now for 20 years. I've been aware of Vermont Reads for a number of years. And one of the things I'm most grateful for about Vermont Reads is that you get uh, folks reading YA, <laughs> that you bring books that are meant for young adults or middle grades and get a large cross-section of people to read them. And I think we, we live in a world where it's easy to um, think that, that young adult and middle grades books are just for young people, but they're not. And I'm just so grateful when adults read books from young people's perspective and when they realize how great YA is. Yeah. So thank you from oh. the bottom of my librarian heart <laughs> for getting more people to read books like The Hate You Give and more. Yeah. We love YA and we love it for everybody. Um, it's really, it's a really a great opportunity for folks to learn about things they, they never thought they would learn about. And the hate you give is a great example.
Well, I cannot wait. I'm going to be looking for projects that emerge from um, the way uh, communities are using this book to spark conversations and make change. So I'm looking forward to those examples. Um, and uh, I'll make sure to pack the transcript with links to a lot of the things you mentioned and to your website. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk about The Hate You Give and about Vermont Reads. Thank you so much for having us. We'll come back anytime. This has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, books by, for, and with Vermont educators. Thank you to Christopher Kaufman Ilstrup, Executive Director of the Vermont Humanities Council, and Jeannie Phillips, host extraordinaire. You can follow us on Twitter, you can follow us on Instagram, just don't follow us around in real life. And you can find out more about the podcast at VT Reads, VT, like the abbreviation for the state, reads.tarrantinstitute.org. And please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or the podcast vending mechanism of your choice. This podcast is a production of the UVM Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education. 